Amen. So once in a while, uh, in between a series that I'll do, you're going to hear about the, the vision of this church. Uh, it's really important for us to remind ourselves what in the world we're doing and why we're doing it. Because you can just kind of get to a point where you just sort of run services and you just sort of run church. And, you know, if people come, you say, oh, well, that's good. And, and you just keep it going. Well, that's, that, that may work in some context, but that's, you know, you, you need to be reminded of the vision um, of this church and why you're here and why you're doing what you're doing and, um, and what we're all about. And I want to do it in a way today. Uh, that's a, a little bit strange. I want to talk to you about how to share your faith on Mars, okay? How to share your faith on Mars. Uh, some of you woke up when I said that. Um, the, the vision of this church, the reason why we exist is to reach the one who is far from God, that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. And you're going to hear that over and over and over again, you who are a part of this church, you're going to hear that. And you're going to be challenged to that end over and over and over again. And we can summarize that in three words that are on the screen there. Reach the one. And the, the idea of reaching means you've got to go and get the person. You've got to, it's not, uh, we're not sort of, well, everybody just needs to come to us. You know, and the idea of, well, when people wake up and when they, when they finally see the light, they'll just sort of discover us and they'll just come. Well, that's not the way that it really works. The way that it works is you've got to go and get them. Uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, sit in your comfortable movie theater church or wherever you meet and just wait for them to come and they'll sort of disciple themselves. Okay, he didn't say that. He said, go and make them. And that wasn't a promise just to some people. That's not just the pastor's role. I know some people in church life, they think, well, that's the pastor's job. You know, uh, th that's not our job. No, it's all of us that can do that. Uh, I can reach some people, but you can reach people who I can't reach. Um, and I can reach people who you can't reach. But the idea is that we're trying to reach people. And it's not about uh, uh, enormous lots of people. You're going to see in, this, in the story that we'll go over today... Um, it's about the ones. It's about the ones and the twos, and every single person has a name. Uh, you're one of the ones who have been reached. You're one of the ones who God has got a hold of, um, and uh, it happens one at a time in, in reality. So um, that's the vision of this church, and it, it, you need to be empowered. I think most of the people who are in this room, probably almost every single person, professes to have a relationship with God here professes to be a Christian. Maybe some of you are, you know, new in this whole thing, and some of you are not so new in this whole thing, but you have that connection uh, with God, apparently. Um, and so how do you share that? And how do you do it on Mars, as I'll say? Uh, because we live in a very bizarre culture, especially here in Quebec, which has its own unique uh, it has its own unique personality. So we live in what has been called a pluralistic culture and a polytheistic culture. It's pluralistic and it's polytheistic. Let me define those terms for you. So pluralism, I found a good, a good definition of this uh, online somewhere. This is the idea, not that we have simply many religious views out in the culture, but that all those views are equal. 
So acceptance of the concept that two or more religions, when you speak about religious uh, uh, pluralism, with mutually exclusive truth claims. So one can be claiming such and such is the truth, and the other one can be claiming such and such, which is totally different and totally opposite, is the truth, that both of those are equally valid. That's pluralism. So that's not simply an acknowledgement that we have many religious beliefs out there, but it's an acknowledgement that all of these religious beliefs are equally valid, regardless of what they teach. And this is the culture that we live in. Uh, in particular, here in the province of Quebec, it's a pluralistic culture. And here in Quebec, it is an intensely secular culture. So the idea is uh, reduce the impact of religion as much as possible. Do you remember the famous uh, charter of uh, charter of values? Is that what it was called? Remember where everybody was? Well, you got to wear your cross smaller, and you got to wear your you know it was all this stuff, and it didn't really get off the ground. But there is a secularization here, in, especially in the province of Quebec, that we're dealing with, and pluralism has to do with that. Not only do we live in a pluralistic culture, it's also polytheistic. So there's many, many gods, many different gods. Uh, so you've got two Ps to deal with. It's pluralism and it's polytheism. And those of you who, who have tried to share your faith at all, in any shape or form, you have run into these ideas, I guarantee. When someone says to you, you know, all roads lead to the same God, whether it's Islam or it's Judaism or it's Christianity or it's Hinduism or it's Satanism, you know, all roads lead to the same God. That is essentially a pluralistic worldview. Uh, well, this religion over here and this religion over here and this is my God and that's my God, that essentially is a polytheistic worldview. So this is the kind of thing that you're dealing with when you attempt to share your faith and just be who you are out in the, in the culture um, so the question is, how then can you, can you share your faith with somebody else? How can you share your faith with somebody of a different religion, different philosophy, different faith system? It's like we're living on another planet uh, here in 21st century modern Quebec. It's like we're living on Mars and we're sharing our faith in a context that's like totally alien in many, many respects. You can go to other places in the world where Christianity and the influence of Christianity and religion at large is much more uh, intense. You can go to places where the, the dominant religion there has a profound effect on the culture. Not so over here and not so in much of the West. Religion is largely a more private thing over here, and it doesn't have that kind of forceful impact on the culture, uh, especially over here in our province. And there are a number of reasons for that. You know, we talk about the, uh, uh, the, the revolt against the Roman Catholic Church from the, you know, the 60s, where people uh, turned against the church, and now the churches are emptying, and the, there was this dominance of the Roman Catholic system here in this province in particular, and so people have rejected it here. And with that, they've rejected the influence of religion at large. So the question, it's a very difficult thing. How do you share your faith on Mars? And the statistics here are different than the rest of Canada. They're different here than the Western world. You've got 99% 
of the people in the province of Quebec who are not like you at all. They do not have this experience of being part of a, of, a, of a church community that believes the things that we believe and they're there every week and they do not have that at all. That's 99%. So you all are really strange people, okay? You're the 1% up to 1% of the population who professes this Christian faith and expresses it in the context of this church. That is bizarre in the province of Quebec. Other provinces, it's a higher percentage. Places in the U.S., it's a higher percentage. Other places around the world, it's a much higher percentage. But here, it's a very odd, odd place. So how do you go out there and share your faith with someone? Um, Jesus said, go and make disciples. And I always challenge people, church people, how many disciples have you made in your entire life? How many people are going to be in the kingdom when that time comes because of you? And for most people who profess to be followers of Jesus, the answer is zero. Or the answer is, I don't have a clue. And, and that, but that's a question that should bother us. Because if we profess to be followers of Jesus, and we've got to do what he told us to do, and he told us to make disciples, if we're not making them, then there's, a, there's an imbalance there. There's something, uh, something is off kilter. So how do we do that? So I want to talk to you about a story from the book of Acts, a bit of a preview, I suppose, of the series that we're going to start next week, uh, about an experience that the Apostle Paul had, who we've met over the last number of weeks uh, a few times, um, in a place called Mars. Um, it's a place in Athens, uh, and it's a little hill that he'll, uh, Justin will put on the screen, a place that was called the Areopagus, um, and sometimes called Mars Hill after the, uh, the, the god, uh, the false god Mars. And uh, the Apostle Paul ends up there through a series of circumstances, and he addresses a crowd of people that's very, very similar, remarkably similar to the people who we address today, even in modern uh, 21st century Quebec. The mindset is very, very similar in this place called Mars Hill, which is in the city of Athens in Greece. Any of you ever been that far to Greece before? Oh boy, I would love to take you all on a trip to Greece. The things that you could see there that relate to the New Testament, astounding. Anyway, this place, the Areopagus on Mars Hill, you'll find in the book of Acts and in particular chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look through a chunk of the book of Acts, just about 15, 20 verses maybe uh, from Acts chapter 17 and uh, verses 16 onwards. So the book of Acts, you'll find really easy. If you can get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then pow, you have the book of Acts, which is a straight narrative. It's really easy to read because it's just a telling of things that happen. It's not, a, it's not poetry, it's not prophecy, it's not a psalm, it's just a straight narrative of the events that happen in the formation of this early uh, uh, church. So it's a great book to read. Uh, I like to call it the book of action because there's so much stuff that's going on in there. Um, and here in this part of it, the Apostle Paul uh, arrives in, in Athens in Greece 
Uh, he's been in Thessalonica where he ultimately faces some persecution and has to leave. And then he ends up in Berea where ultimately the same thing happens. And then he ends up alone in Athens while he's waiting for some of his, his friends, Silas and Timothy. Uh, but he's by himself there. And this is his experience uh, from verses 16 onward. And he runs into this culture, this, this whole Greco-Roman culture, and he's trying to share his faith there. And the lessons that we see there and the opportunities that he has uh, really relate to you and me today. So stay with me. I'm going to give you eight, eight little tips, eight principles as to how you can share your faith on Mars, all right? Uh, so it starts this way. Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his friends. And the scripture says there in verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, let me tell you about the religious world at the time of the apostle Paul. You have the whole Greco-Roman pantheon, as it was called, their whole system of gods and goddesses, which was vast. You had people who worshipped the emperor himself as God, which was very common. You had the worship of the occult there, even back there, which was very common. And you had a number of these so-called philosophies that were quite dominant there, especially in Greece and Athens. And we've actually gone through this before back at Christmas time. But I want to show you these and you'll see some, some the same stuff is happening today. Um, it, Plato. Uh, and, and Platonism, the, the idea that, he, in general, just summarizing, seek the highest good and liberate yourself from the material world. This kind of thought still exists today. Um, Epicureanism, uh, essentially, you are the product of time and chance. That's why you're here. Uh, you're the product of time and chance. Uh, the Gnostics kind of a salvation through secret knowledge, uh, secret in particular esoteric knowledge, certainly not in the physical world. The physical world can't save you. Secret knowledge can save you. Uh, the Stoics believe that happiness can be achieved by absolute reason. So if you can reason it out with your mind, you can experience some type of salvation. Uh, the Cynics, the height of virtue is to abolish desire. Ah, desire is the cause of all problems. If you can abolish desire, then you've found some type of salvation. The skeptics, all terms of judgment are relative. This is very popular even today, where it's relative. Well, if it's, if it's good for you, then it's good for you, but it may be bad for me. It's all relative. What's good? There's no absolute, no universal, no moral uh, uh, truth. There's relativism. So these kinds of ideas were floating around even in Paul's time, and this is what he's facing. Some have argued that today there's no other time in history that's as similar to what Paul experienced here in Acts chapter 17. You're talking 2,000 years ago. It seems like what goes around comes around. It's like a big, big circle. Nothing really ever changes. We wrap different bows on these ideas today, but it's the same ideas. So how is he sharing his faith in this odd culture in this place called Mars Hill? Uh, let me give you some, some principles from his experience, okay? Number one, the, the, the pluralism and the polytheism of our culture, it should cause an internal distress, 
So something is beeping in Paul's heart when he sees, as it says in verse 16 there, he's greatly distressed to see that the city is full of idols. So he's looking around at all of this religion and all of this polytheism, in particular the idols that are made there. And he's distressed on the inside. It's like something is going off in his heart. And it bothers him to see this. And you will see that he, he talks about this when he's sharing his faith with those people. And the idea in his time was that the people have, uh, God has created man, but man has created God. And that's an adage we still use today. You know, if God has created us and then we dare to somehow create God in our own image with our own ideas and cast this image. This is something that is very, very offensive to God, but it's also something that leads people astray and away from God. And this is what bothered Paul when he looked around and he saw all of these idols. It was disturbing to him. Some old translations say that he was vexed when he saw all of the idols. I love that old word. I think the King James uh, uses the word vexed. Even today, when we look around at modern culture, okay, you don't see you know, people bowing down to idols here in Brassard too often. Uh, but what do you see? People do create God in their own image. We, we still do that. We still say, well, you know, God has maybe revealed himself through the book we call the Bible, but we create God in our own image all the time. And we, when we ignore his revelation as to who he is, we say, no, God is this way, God is this way, or this is God, or that is God. That, in a sense, is idolatry the same way that someone would cast an image. It's the idea of we have now decided who God is and how God is. That is idolatry by definition. And uh, the parts of the New Testament say that greed is idolatry. Anything that we cast, that we put our own ideas on, and that we begin to place front and center in our lives and worship, this becomes an idol. And this blocks us. This blocks our relationship with God. It doesn't help us get closer to God. It helps us get farther from God. And this bothered Paul. It should bother us as well. If we profess to be followers of Christ, it should bother us. We should look around at all of this stuff, all this pluralism and polytheism, and say, oh, you know, that there should be something going off in the, in the heart there. But sometimes we just get numb to it. And we just see there's just no, there's no reaction. And it's just, well, this is the way that it is. But there's no sense of, yeah, but this is a distressing thing. This is pushing people away from God. It's not drawing people toward God. It should cause an internal uh, distress. But you see what Paul does with it. And this is the fascinating part. Verse 17. And so, because he saw this distress, so he went around and smashed all the idols. That's not what it says. <laughs> so he yelled and screamed and he got on a little box and he said, you horrible sinners, you're all, you're all going to die and you're all going to go to you know, this horrible place because you're all idolaters. You're so far from God. No, it doesn't say that. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogues where this is where the religious Jewish people would be with the Jews, but also with the God-fearing Greeks, so you did have Greek people back then 
who would have this understanding of Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So he's not condemning. He's reasoning with the people. And a lot of times, a lot of Christians, our first reaction to all of this, all these different ideas and different religions and whatnot is condemnation. Oh, these horrible people, these horrible sinners. You know, when are they going to learn? We need to knock some sense into them. This is not what Paul is doing. Disturbed as he is, to reason is much better than to condemn. Uh, someone said, you catch more flies with honey. You know, and he took an approach there where that type of distress, that passion that he felt, he's going to use it to reason with the people. And sometimes when you do that type of approach with people who you're talking to, it's much, much better to do that than to condemn. Believe me, they've heard plenty of condemnation uh, from the church, and it never really gets people very far. Um, and the reaction to this is that a group of Epicureans, we've seen what they believe, you're the product of, uh, of time and chance, and the Stoics, salvation through reason alone, uh, these philosophers, they start to argue with Paul. And they say, uh, they say um, what is this guy talking about? What is this babbler trying to say? And others say, well, he seems to be advocating some foreign gods. Why do they say this? The text says they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So what happens? They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or this place called Mars Hill. Some translations of your Bibles will say that. Uh, where, um, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange new ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And the author, Luke, there says all the, these people in Athens and the foreigners who live there, all they do is spend their time looking at the newest ideas. So they're like the soap opera of the first century. <laughs> they're all, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the talk show of the first century. They all want to know the latest ideas. So they hear Paul, they say, you know what? Come up to Mars Hill and talk to us about your, your foreign gods and all this stuff. We find this interesting. This is a wonderful moment that God gives to Paul. It's what I'll call a Mars moment. And you've got to realize that God is going to give you those moments almost every day. He's going to give you opportunity if you don't condemn people and you reason and you share your faith in a reasonable way, you're going to see that God is going to give you those moments, those, those times where you have the stage, where they're going to want to hear what you, talk, what you believe and what you talk about. Maybe they won't believe a thing that you're saying, but you're going to have the Mars moment. God will give it to you if you proceed down a path of respect and reasoning rather than condemnation, God will give you a Mars moment. And then we see the story um, continues, and uh, Paul stands up at the meeting of the Areopagus. He's on Mars Hill. He's got an attentive audience, and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Interesting. And he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you proclaim is something unknown. 
I am going to proclaim to you. Paul makes an observation about their religious devotion. Amazing. He doesn't condemn the fact that they're idolaters. He looks around and he sees, man, you guys are so religious. Like you have idols everywhere. There's religion. There's ideas everywhere. You're very, very spiritual people. You're very, very religious people. And I even found one of your idols says to an unknown God. Aha, I will tell you who that unknown God is. I've seen people uh, walking around and they wear every, every chain of every religion they wear. Any kind, it's a cross, it's a star of David, it's an upside down cross, it's a, you know, every kind of religion, they put it around their neck as if to say, one of them has got to work. So I'll just put them all on and hopefully I'll be okay. One of them is going to work. It's the same idea. It's to an unknown God. Well, what all those chains I see around your neck, let me tell you about the God who you don't know. He's taking a moment there, again, not to condemn what he sees, but to use it as an opportunity to tell people the simple story about Jesus. He makes an observation about their religious devotion. Can I tell you, the people of Quebec are very, very spiritual people. There are very few hardcore atheists in Quebec. Okay, it's a very secular culture, but people are very, very spiritual. They believe all kinds of bizarre things, mind you, but they're very, very spiritual here in Quebec. Like, I don't believe this stuff that people say that people in Quebec don't, don't acknowledge any kind of God or anything. I don't believe that because I've met enough people in Quebec for 40 years to observe that the people here are actually very spiritual. They're just all kinds of ideas. Well, that's great. You can come in on that angle and share your faith with someone uh, by simply making an observation about their religion. So, uh, so I, when I serve with people, uh, in particular at the, at the food bank uh, that I serve at every, every Thursday now, and uh, when I've worked in the marketplace before I was a pastor, a lot of the people who I worked with, and even people who I serve with now, uh, you know, you can pick up the religion even in their language. Have you ever noticed that in Quebec... If you notice that religion is used as vulgarity, have you ever noticed this? So when people, when people want to use harsh language in Quebec, every, every word that they use has to do with religion. I mean, they talk about the Old Testament the, and, the, and the, the portable tabernacle <laughs> in the Old Testament. They talk about Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. Uh, many people, regardless of their French Quebecois or whatever, they use the name of Jesus often. Like you've got people who you work with who use the name of Jesus in their language more than you. And you're Christians. And they will say the name of Jesus a hundred times a day. You'll probably say it maybe 25 times a day. They're more religious than you. So uh, it's so quiet. So I've said, I've said to people when they, you know, they, they, something happens, they slam their hand with a hammer and say, oh, and they, you know, they say the name of Jesus. So we can get so offended by that as Christians. Or we can turn around and say, boy, you're very religious. That's the 10th time you said the name of Jesus in the last five minutes. You're more religious than me and I go to church every week. 
I, I've tried that approach with people and it leaves them stunned. Like they don't, they don't understand, they, like they don't even realize it. I had one guy who I was talking to, and, and again, so, something happened or whatever, and he, and he mentioned as a swear word the place where Jesus was crucified, Calvary. And I said to him, I said, do you know what you just said? I, I said, that's the place where Jesus was crucified. And he said, what? I didn't even know that. I said, well, that's exactly what you just said. That's what it, he said, oh, I thought it was the grail that he, he drank the wine from said, no, that's not what you just said. You just said the place where Jesus was crucified. Oh, I didn't know that. Do you understand? You're making an observation about their religious devotion that they don't even understand that they have. And when you do that, you can get a conversation going rather than, rather than picking up your big black Bible and slamming them over the head and say, oh, you horrible, sinful person. You can try that approach. But the likelihood of you having another conversation with the person about the things of Jesus is like minus 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. You just alienated the person from the gospel uh, with your religion. And that may work for you, but it doesn't help you reach the one who is far from God. So he makes observations about their religious devotion rather than condemning it. He's going to look for a hook to explain his faith to these people. And then you see in verses 23 to 31, he, he, he gives his little, his little speech, if you will, and this is what he says, talking to the Greco-Roman pantheon, talking to all these different philosophies, talking to people who worship the emperor, talking to people who worship the occult, all these things. The God who made the world and everything in it. Listen, the, the God who you don't know, who you worship as an unknown God. Let me tell you about this person. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples that are built by hands. Um, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. If you're talking to the religious views of that day... You have an attentive audience because those are the things that they believed just in a different way. And he's talking to them about the revelation of God. From one man, he made every nation on earth um, and determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. The Epicureanism would say, what? I thought we were the product of time and chance. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our own being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He is quoting from two totally non-believing poets of that time and culture. And he's, he's using their own culture, their own language to tell them about Jesus and the message of salvation. So he understands, this is the next point, he understands the culture and the belief systems around him. He doesn't avoid them. He doesn't stick his head in the sand and say, well, I'm a Christian. I need to come out and be separate from these horrible pagan people. Maybe they'll come to repentance if I pray for them long enough. No, what he does is he understands the things in general that they believe. He doesn't avoid them. He doesn't run from them. He even knows what the poets are writing. In the modern world today, it would be, you know, the songs that are being sung. 
you know the culture, you know the pop culture, you, you know uh, what people are listening to, you know what people are watching on television, you know what they're seeing in the movies, you understand the culture, you haven't buried your head in the sand as a Christian. And Paul, he understands his culture very, very well. Can I tell you how many Christians that I've run into who say, no, 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 we need to run away from the culture. <laughs> we need to go, we need to isolate ourselves, build our own little subculture, but we do not want to connect with the culture at all. Well, that may work for you, but you won't reach the one who's far from God that way. You'll build a little subculture, you'll build a little community, but you won't reach people. So for, uh, an example of this, a wonderful community actually is the Amish community. Any of you ever been to the Amish country? Uh, the Amish are a Christian community who have isolated themselves from the broader culture. And they, you know, they have all kinds of challenges as to how to do this. They have no electricity for the most part, but they do have cell phones now. You know, they get around in horse and buggy, but their horse and buggies have flasher signals on them. You know, they, they, but they try and isolate themselves and be separate from the broader culture because the broader culture is sinful and could impact their lives in a negative way. And the, the Amish community doesn't grow by conversion. The Amish community grows by multiplication. They just have more and more babies. So that's how they grow. But, but their, their idea is not to reach people who are far from God. Their idea is to build their own sub-community. This is not the idea, really, that we see in the pages of the New Testament. The heart of Jesus is to reach people Again, to reach people who are far from God. And you've got to understand what the culture and the beliefs are. It doesn't mean you have to do what other people do. It doesn't mean you have to live like other people live. But you better well understand it if you're going to have a conversation with your non-Christian friend. Are you still with me? Okay. I'm, I'm trying to keep you awake here. I know this is a little bit different. Verse 23, uh, Paul finds uh, another uh, principle here. He finds a point of dialogue with the people. So the God who made the world and everything in it is not the Lord, uh, uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. So he looks around and he says, I have a point of dialogue with these people. I'm going to redirect their, the way that they think, but I have a point of dialogue. I have a, I have a hook. I have a way to talk to them. This week, uh, again, when I was over at the, at the food bank in, in Brossard, I'm, I'm sharing my faith with this guy every week. I, I talk to him about my faith in some shape or form, just about every week, and he's watching me very, very closely. I'm sure some of you have had the same experience before, and he's watching me, and he asks me questions sometimes, and we were talking about the news. So I brought up as an experiment uh, a piece of political news. There's lots of good, juicy politics that are happening in the world today, yes? And you can bring this stuff up, and it, it can engage a person in a really fun conversation. So I talked to this guy about uh, the president of the United States and how he did something. It's very easy to do, right? And how he did something that no other sitting president has ever done in the history of the, what, 45 presidents of the United States. Not one president has ever done what he did. Now, there's many things that he's doing that not one other president did. But this was remarkable. He went to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. The western wall, the retaining wall for the old city that's still standing, partially standing, that was built by Herod the Great 
more than 2,000 years ago. Very, very sacred place. He went to the wailing wall, had his yarmulke on, and was putting his hands on the wall. Have you seen this video? So I talked to, to uh, my, my, this buddy of mine who I'm sharing my faith with, and, and we're talking about politics. I said, yeah, did you see him go over to the wailing wall? And of course, he, he erupted at this because he's into politics. And he said, yeah, you know, and he starts talking to, to me about uh, the, there's a whole conflict in the Middle East. And he says, you know, in Israel, they're, they're killing the Palestinians and they're driving them out of their homes. And what's your opinion on that? You're the pastor, la, 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 la. And he's giving me an open opportunity to talk to him about the things of the Bible. Open opportunity. And we're bantering back and forth, you know. And, uh, and I, I made a change for someone who, who bought something at the, at the mission. And I gave him the wrong change. I shortchanged the person by five bucks. And so my buddy there, he caught me and he said, look, he shortchanged the person five dollars and he's a pastor. <laughs> and we're bantering back and forth. And of course, I corrected the situation, gave the person their five bucks. And, and, but all of these things created opportunity to talk about, about God. And, and we began to talk about things and there were other people involved in the conversation. And I said, wow, it's just like Acts chapter 17. Find a point of dialogue with people rather than running from people and burying your head in the sand. Um, uh, Next principle, and we're almost done. The the proclamation that you make when God gives you that moment, when he gives you that little stage, when he gives you the five minutes that you have, you've got to try and make it relevant to people. Look, I've seen Christians who they try and share their faith and they're arguing ad infinitum, ad nauseum as to whether or not God created the world in six 24-hour days or six eons of time. Argue, argue, argue. Can I just tell you, when a person dies and stands face to face in front of Jesus, he's not going to ask them, now, do you believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days or six eons of time? If it's six 24-hour days, you can come in. Six eons of time, we don't let people in who believe that. Okay, this, is not, this, this is not an essential of the Christian faith. Yes, it's important. I happen to be a creationist, okay? I do believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days. I'm one of those strange creationists. No, I don't believe the world is flat, but I do believe that God created the world quite, quite rapidly. Okay, but he's not inspecting that. And determining a person's salvation on that, um, it doesn't matter what a person's interpretation of, the, of the, the, the horses of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation is. And you can argue with the person over and over and over again. Okay, now I think I've got them to believe, you know, in my view of the end times. I've really argued them into a corner where they believe my view and my understanding of the future and the end times. Okay, that's great. But did you get them any closer to the Savior? Did you get them to the basic, basic gospel story? And you see that the way Paul gives it to them, so, so simple, but he's giving them the straight, simple gospel message of Jesus and how he died for our sins and that he's coming again, that he's a righteous judge, that salvation is a, is a reality. He's giving them the straight, straight gospel message. 
over and over and over, he brings it back to that point. It's got to be relevant or it doesn't do anything in the end. It's got to be relevant. And finally, we proclaim the message, but you leave the whole idea of conversion to God. Can I just tell you, those of you who, I think I've still got most of you, you know, as an audience here, but can I just tell you that you're going to blow it over and over and over again when you try to share your faith. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things. You'll be like, oh, I don't think I said that right. I don't think I answered that question right. I made a mistake there. I must be a lousy Christian. You know, uh, I don't know enough. I need to read more books or I need to whatever. I need to repent. I'm just a terrible witness for Jesus, you know. Can I just, can I get you off of your guilt trip? Like any time that God gives you an opportunity and you share, even if you make a mistake, God can use your rotten theology. He can use your mistakes. He can use your ignorance to bring a person to Christ. At least you're trying. At least you're taking the opportunity to try and share your faith. And you see here, this is the Apostle Paul that we're talking about um, and, and the results of his little message. So from verse 29, uh, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or like silver or an image made by man's design and skill. Again, you know, God creates man, but ah, man turns around and he creates God. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, referring to Jesus. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Watch the reaction. I mean, some people have called this one of the most brilliant sermons that we see in the whole New Testament. Look at the reaction. This is the Apostle Paul. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was, we've got a name, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. He didn't have a huge result of people. We're not looking at hundreds and thousands of people who just sort of miraculously came to a point of conversion. It's one person at a time. And the reaction, some people sneer, some people say, oh, interesting, I'd like to hear that again. And some people, they step across the line of faith. And we have a couple of names there. Can I tell you, that's reality. That's the realm of reality. And if that was Paul's, that's going to be ours as well. So the question is, are we doing any of that? Are we doing anything to try and reach people who are far from God? I can tell you with certainty that God has positioned each one of you in a place where you can influence somebody else. He has positioned you where you have an opportunity that nobody else has but you. And the person you can influence could be a family member, could be a, a spouse, it could be a, a co-worker, it could be a fellow student, it could be a person that you're communicating with in social media it could be anyone you have the opportunity no one else has got it what will you do to share your faith what will you do 
to make disciples and to try and reach the one who is far from God. That's the challenge for you uh, this morning. Would you stand with me? I'd like to close in, in prayer. And um, the band, you want to come and want to come and do a song? Do something up. Okay, people are people were were hanging hanging tight with me and trying not to fall asleep today. Uh, but I think I've given you a lot of food for thought. All right, let me pray for you, Father. I pray for each one who's here today, uh, all at different different places in their journey with you. Uh, some at the beginning and the early steps of faith. Some who have who have uh, experienced uh, uh, this idea of salvation for a long period of time. Uh, Lord, wherever we are wherever we are at i pray that you would help us to to reorient our our priorities and uh god that we would somehow have a burden and a a passion for people who are unchurched people who are irreligious people who are of a different uh, idea altogether a different religious view a different worldview a different lifestyle but god that there would be something that would beat within us that would make us want to share jesus with a lost world even though we have our own issues and we have our own struggles you've given each one of us a platform and each one of us a mars moment god may we step out in faith and by your power uh, be used of you to share jesus we pray to that end amen